0: morning everyone. It's so good to see so many of you at this 9.30am service and I trust that God has already spoken to us in many ways through a ministry of worship, music and prayer and may God continue to speak to us even as we open our hearts to him whether on site or online. Today we continue our pulpit series on 1 Corinthians and to those who are new to Wesley, we are halfway through this sermon series and you can listen to the previous sermons at our church website. Now we have already seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 to 6 Paul dealing with problems brought to his attention by the people from Corinth. In chapter 7 Paul began to address the things about which you wrote to me, issue issues about which the Corinthian Christians had written to Paul. Now the question that Paul ad- addresses in chapter 8 to 10 is whether it is permissible for Christians to eat meat that has been offered to idols. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 8-10 to carry a profound message that resonates deeply with the Christian way of life, and that is the concept of laying down your rights for the sake of love and unity. Let's ask God to bless our time together as we commit this time to him in prayer. Father, we thank you that your word is powerful and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword. We pray, O God, that your word would provoke our thinking, penetrate our hearts, and propel our will to respond in obedience to you. Open every corner of our hearts, O God, as we give you undivided attention and await eagerly to hear your living word. Speak, Lord, for we, your people, are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's this public library which has a system called Dal A Tale. You know, anytime a child wants to hear a fairy tale, the child can just call a certain number and he will then hear a voice reading a short fairy tale to him. However, the number to call is only one digit different from a certain man. And because the little fingers often make mistakes, the man gets frequent calls from children calling in to listen to fairy tales. Now, after several unsuccessful attempts to explain a wrong number to many small children, the man decided to get a storybook, Three Little Pigs, and set it by the phone. So whenever a child calls, he simply reads the story to the child. Now, what would you do if you were that man? Hung up the phone? Change your phone number? You know, the man didn't, as you might have thought, change his telephone number to avoid the invasion of his privacy. Friends, this is a very beautiful illustration of laying down personal rights. You know, our culture today is similar to that of the Corinthians. We emphasize our rights and freedom, our society values personal autonomy and the pursuit of personal gain above all else. But Apostle Paul offers a different perspective. He calls us to a higher standard of living rooted in selfless love. And it has to do with the use of our freedom. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 teaches us to exercise our freedom with love, so that we do not stumble others. In Corinth, much of the meat available for human consumption had been sacrificed to idols. Typically, part of the meat was burned on the altar, part was reserved for the priests, part was consumed by the people making the sacrifices and the rest were available for sale. And of the meat available for purchase, some would be served restaurant-style in temples, and the rest would be sold in meat markets throughout the city. Now, while it was clear that meat served in temples had been sacrificed to idols, it would be more difficult, often impossible, to determine the origin of meat for sale in a market. And there were two dimensions to the problem for Christians. One was whether it was permissible to eat meat served within the temple prisons. The other was whether it was permissible to purchase meat that had been sacrificed to idols and to eat it at home. Now let me ask you, do these rituals somehow automatically taint the food? Can Christians buy it? Can they eat it if it was offered to them at their friends' homes? And what about the various social events, weddings, parties, clubs, and so on, which often use a temple dining halls for their festivities? Can Christians participate and eat at these events? And what about more overtly religious rites in those temples? Now, some of us here perhaps may come from a non-Christian background. Perhaps we come from a typically Chinese background that is rooted in Chinese religions, customs, practices, or traditions. And here's a seminar that can enlighten you. We saw it in the Wesley Highlights, and you can scan this QR code uh, to register for this midweek teaching on Chinese customs. Now, let me give you a very quick summary of 1 Corinthians chapter 8-10. to Now, chapter 8 introduces the problem and its two-pronged solution. Freedom, in principle, to eat when there are no inherently anti-Christian implications involved, but voluntary abstention when other Christians might be damaged by one's freedom. Now, chapter 8 can be divided into three distinct sections. Verses 1 to 3, in verse 1 to 3, we see Paul's thesis of yes, but. And in verses 4 to 6, Paul expands on the yes, the theme of freedom based on Christian knowledge. Verses 7 to 13 Then elaborates the theme of voluntary restraint based on Christian love. That is, no, because of love. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 to 18 gives the illustration of the principle of freedom tempered by love. And this is Paul's example in morally neutral areas where he discusses the issue of accepting money for ministry in verses 19 to 27 he generalizes further by his underlying principle for all of his behavior in these gray areas of life now chapter 10 1 to 13 prepares for paul's absolute prohibition in the coming section And here Paul warns against using one's freedom as a license for immorality. Verses 14 to 22 then lays down Paul's one unbending requirement on the topic of idle meat. It should never be eaten in overtly pagan religious rituals. The trouble with idolatry will be dealt with next week. Now Paul brings the discussion full circle in verses 23 to chapter 11, verse 1. He repeats the two key principles of chapter 8, but ultimately tips the balance of the scale in favour of freedom. So what does, it, what does 1 Corinthians chapter 8 say about laying down your rights? Friends, true discernment, true discernment always requires love as well as knowledge. However, there is the priority of love over the pursuit of knowledge. Listen as I now read verses 1 to 3. Now concerning food sacrificed to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Knowledge paths up. But love builds up. Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge, but anyone who loves God is known by Him. Now, basically, there are two groups of people at Corinth. They legally say, Do what the law says. The libertines disagree. We know better. Be free. Now, Paul's essential answer is this love is what matters, not Knowledge. As David Pryor in the Bible Speaks Today puts it, the overriding principle is love. Love builds up. Love builds up. Now, Paul is not condemning knowledge outright. He's concerned that true agape love should control and categorize their knowledge. The spirit in which we say what is right is as much part of the truth as the knowledge we articulate. Friends, knowledge on its own, particularly of the kind paraded by these Corinthians experts, only puffs up. Knowledge is important. We all possess some, but on its own, it is inflated and empty. So what is true knowledge? As someone puts it, knowledge devoid of love, and of power to edify, when we look at it more nearly, is not even true knowledge. Friends, a Christian, a Christian needs to be filled with love because love builds up. Paul is concerned for the church at Corinth to be strong and firm, and that requires a solid base of true Christ-like love which is not puffed up. Church, when a Christian's character is controlled by love and growing in true knowledge, he's not so much concerned with how well he knows God. He's more concerned with being known by God. Any true knowledge, any true knowledge does not lead to pride in what we know, but to humility about what we do not know if we have agape love we want to give we want to help and we want to build up others now we can apply this overriding principle of love to the question of food offered to others and here's paul's main point specialist knowledge about the richer and religious origins of a particular chunk of meat either in a market or at your host's dining table, will achieve nothing to build up the faith of fellow Christians. And what's important is the impact on my brother or sister on what I might do in this sensitive situation. You see, my knowledge of Christian fundamentals will achieve nothing except impressing others with my knowledge. If, on the other hand, I carefully work out how my fellow Christians will react to my behaviour and decide accordingly how I will behave, I will build up the body of Christ. True knowledge, true discernment always requires love as well as knowledge. True Christian knowledge cannot be separated from agape love. However, love, not knowledge, must form the foundation of Christian behaviour. And that is the first discipleship lesson. Let's pause for a moment to ask ourselves, is our behaviour constructive? Are people brought closer to God Are Christians strengthened in their faith? Are people glad to have met us? Friends, when a Christian's knowledge is radiated and released by love, he's clearly demonstrating that he knows God and that God knows him. And that is, there is a deepening personal relationship between the two. The priority of love over the pursuit of knowledge. In verses 4 to 6, Paul talks about the perspective of God and idols. Verse 4, Hence, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that no idol in the world really exists and that there is no God but one. Indeed, even though there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as in fact there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now verses 4 to 6 provide the basis for Christian freedom. To eat this sacrificial food. The idols to which the meat is dedicated have no objective spiritual existence. And here's the fundamental truth there is only one true God. You know, Paul was very steep in his Jewish understanding of monotheism and the sovereignty of God. He knew that all, he knew. Well, the Old Testament scorned for idolatry, and we see him declaring forthrightly here that there is only one true God in the universe. Now, the stronger Corinthian Christians would have agreed and were perhaps using this logic to support their freedom to eat. Now, part of the knowledge of the Corinthians in-group was the obvious fact to them that there was nothing at all in this local Idolatry, that is, an idol has no real existence. And Paul readily agrees and also endorses their other premise, there is no God but one. And Paul says that it is also true that there may be so-called gods, but all the gods of the heathen, they are but idols. Now look carefully at verse 6 and see what Paul is asserting. Yet for us, there is one God the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now, the most natural meaning of us and we in this verse is Christians. Jesus is the bridge to God, the go-between, the mediator, the way to God. And friends, this is a fundamental truth from which Paul will not be shifted. There are fundamental differences between God, who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the deities worshipped in all other religions. And here's the second discipleship lesson. What is safe for one Christian may not be for another. Knowledge alone is not enough to justify the individual's freedom to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Verses 7 to 17 unpack Paul's qualification of the exercise of Christian freedom. Our freedom may damage the weak conscience of some believers. Love must therefore limit freedom. And so Paul warns of the potential to destroy He elaborates on the theme of voluntary restraint based on Christian love. Now, Paul gives three reasons for voluntarily abstaining from either meat in the presence of those who are unable to handle the practice. The first is not to stumble others, not to lead another to sin. Verse 7, It is not everyone, however, who has this knowledge. Since some may have become so accustomed to idols until now, they still think of the food they eat as food offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Now some of the Corinthian Christians could not eat idol meat even in private homes, and most certainly not in temple dining halls without recalling the past religious associations that the meat had for them and this is a special concern for the poor poorer members of the church who probably would not have had regular access eating meat except at temple rituals and for them meat still had inherently religious connotations their inner thoughts would accuse them resulting in feelings of guilt or defilement. Now, Paul continues in verse 8 Food will not bring us close to God. We are, not, we are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. Abstaining from food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse off if we eat, and no better off if we do not eat, except when our behavior leads others. To sin. Now, what's the discipleship lesson here? Precisely because it is a neutral issue, there is no inherent spiritual advantage in eating the meat or disadvantage in avoiding it. Therefore, concern for one's fellow Christian should take precedence. Verses verses 9 to 12 combine to make the point that the Corinthians should not behave in ways that lead each other into sin. Now, verse 9 provides the thesis statement for the paragraph, but take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. What's the discipleship lesson here? Verse 9 urges Christians not to demand your rights in ways that cause fellow Christians to sin. You know, the term translated as liberty in a NRSV, as freedom in a NIV, is exousia. It's often translated as authority in other contexts. And it carries the nuance of possessing the right to act in some particular way. Now one question that Christians need to face is how to use the freedom or even the authority that they have to behave in ways that are responsible. Friends, the message for the church today is this. We may have Freedom in Christ, but it must be used with discretion and in particular with care for the sake of the vulnerable. Our freedom in certain matters of behaviour can be put aside when a faith crisis for another is at stake. To relinquish one's freedom is not to lose it. It is one way of using it. then The crucial balance between permissiveness and legalism always proves far more difficult to maintain than either of the extremes. It requires much more thought and care rather than simply a blanket prohibition of a certain practice or to tolerate it indiscriminately. Remember this. False principle of moderation does not apply to murder, theft, extramarital sex, gluttony, homosexuality or a host of other sins that the Bible makes clear are always wrong. Nor may they be applied, for example, to the use of drugs that are addictive and therefore destructive. And even when Christian freedom leaves the door open to certain practices, even when no one will be hurt by them, that does not mean Christians should get involved unless that behavior glorifies God. Look at the potential to destroy in verse 10. For if others see you who possess knowledge, Eating in the temple of an idol might they not, since their conscience is weak, be encouraged to the point of eating food sacrificed to idols. Now verse 10 is often understood to mean that while the stronger Christians could draw appropriate boundaries and eat meat from the marketplace without being tempted to go to the temple, the weaker Christians could not. And hence that which was morally neutral led the weaker Christians to go on to do that which was inherently sinful. Now verse 11 spells out the second reason for voluntary abstinence. So by your knowledge, the weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed. And here's a supreme consideration not to destroy the one for whom Christ died. Friends, using one's freedom was actually damaging the spiritual lives of the weak. The third reason for voluntary abstention is in verse 12. But when you thus sin against brothers and sisters, and wound their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. The first part of verse 12 elaborates the type of damage described here as wounding others' weak conscience. The second part of verse 12 gives a third reason for abstinence, not to sin against Christ. As in Jesus' sayings in the Gospel of Matthew, treatment of fellow Christians equals treatment of their Lord. Paul concludes chapter 8 with an absolute, with a conditional absolute in verse 13. Therefore, if food is the cause of their falling, I will never again eat meat so that I may not cause one of them to fall. Friends, where there is good reason to believe that exercising one's freedom in amoral areas will actually lead a fellow Christian into sin, restraint is always right. That is, lay down your rights. Now let me summarize. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul states the principle that exercising love for one's brothers and sisters is more important than exercising the freedom that we have in Christ. And Paul models this principle by his own example in chapter 9. He tells us how he has done that. He had the right to marry, but he chose to forego that right to devote full time to preaching the gospel. He had the right to require his congregation to provide for him financially, but he chose to forego that right for their benefit. And so also, the Corinthians should choose to forego their right to eat meat sacrificed to idols if someone might misunderstand their behaviour and thus be injured. Now, two dangers remain ever present. A separatism that prevents Christians from being the source of the earth and the light of the world, and a syncretism, a mixture of religions that adopts pagan practices with damaging consequences. And here's the final discipleship lesson. Christians have no right to demand certain freedoms if they in turn prove detrimental to those around them. Now, Pastor Ben is preaching in the hall right now in the prayer and prayer service on First Corinthians chapter nine, and encourage us to take some time to listen to how Paul laid down his rights as an apostle. In chapter ten, Paul returns to the subject of idols, and he restates his principle of love in chapter ten, verse twenty-three and twenty-four. He says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Now let me close with this story. In the summer of 1986, two ships collided in the Black Sea off the coast of Russia. And hundreds of passengers died as they were being hurled into the icy waters below. The news of the disaster was further darkened when an, when an investigation reviewed the cause of the accident. It wasn't a technical problem like radar malfunction or even thick fog. The cause was human stubbornness. Now, each captain was aware of the other ship's presence nearby. Both could have steered clear, but according to news reports, neither captain wanted to give way to the other. Each was too proud to yield first, and by the time they came to their senses, it was too late. Let us pray. Let's continue to allow God's word to sing into our hearts as we respond to him. What is God saying to you today? And what is God saying to you about your freedom? Invite us to take some time to pray. Father, we thank you for all that you are teaching us from 1 Corinthians and the many lessons to learn from the early church. May we never become a stumbling block in the lives of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. May we never put an obstacle in their path because of the freedom that we have in you. Help us, O oh God, to carefully consider the needs of and sensitivities of others before our own for your greater glory. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.